0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, if you've got your Bibles, uh, go to Joshua chapter 2. My name is Ross, and I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel, and we are in a uh, an Advent series Advent uh, simply means arrival or uh, coming uh, uh, presenting and so at Advent, what we remember is the arrival of Jesus when he comes into the world as a baby uh, through mary the the teenage mother into the you know the stable there in Bethlehem because there was no room for them in the end and uh so it's Advent, the, the arrival of Jesus, and we talk about this period of time as the first Advent of Jesus. But not only do we celebrate and remember when Jesus came, we also, as a people, look forward to Jesus' next arrival, the next Advent, the next appearing. And so we um, want to keep both of those things in view as we celebrate this Christmas season together. And one of the ways that we are doing that is we are looking at Matthew's genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. So, But stay over in Joshua chapter 2 and I'll tell you why. But in Matthew's genealogy, Matthew is is writing, he's writing to the the Jewish people, and he is presenting a case that Jesus is the king um, that we have all been waiting for. He is the Messiah that the Old Testament has prophesied. He is the one who brings about the fulfillment of the prophecies of God, the redemption of God, the salvation of God. And he's presenting Jesus as the king in the line of David from Abraham. And so you do that, you would present a genealogy. You would start it with, this is this man's lineage. This is his history. These are his ancestors. And in this ancient world, you would have done that in a way that highlighted all of these significant people in your family tree. And, and it is a way of uh, creating validity and credibility and um, you know capital with those that will be your followers. Oh, look at this man and look at where he comes from. What an important person. And so Matthew is going about presenting a genealogy of the king. But what is so surprising in Matthew's genealogy, is that he includes five women, including Jesus' mother, Mary. So, four women plus Mary. And and what's so fascinating about this, one, that there weren't in genealogies in that day, you didn't typically include women. You included all the great men that had succeeded him, uh, or had come before him. And so, you have uh, women that show up in Jesus' genealogy as presented by Matthew but more than that it is the kind of women that show up in Jesus' genealogy you you don't have women that are necessarily heroes they're women that every time one of them is spoken your mind as a Jewish person would have gone back to the Jewish scriptures to to our Old Testament and, and you would have remembered the scandal related to each of these women now, Matthew could have included four women before he got to marry. For sure, it was the women that most of the Old Testament genealogies would refer to or that the, uh, the ancestral mothers of Israel, if you will. You know, you have Sarah, who's the wife of Abraham, very noble. And you have Rebekah, who's the wife of Isaac, very noble. And you have uh, the two sisters that married Jacob, you know, Rachel and Leah. And despite their uh, friction, they, they are the mothers of the tribe of Israel. But that's not who Matthew includes. In fact, Matthew inserts these women on one hand for no good reason. He intentionally puts them in the genealogy, almost as though he forces them into the genealogy for us as readers. Because Matthew wants us to know something about Jesus, and that something about Jesus is related to these four women. It's related to everyone that's in the genealogy and all of their scandals. It's it's by no means sanitized. But these four women in particular, Matthew inserts them, and it's as though he wants to say, listen to their story. If you want to know who Jesus is and why he came, listen to them. And so we did last week. We looked at Tamar, who was the first on the list. And this morning we will look at the next woman in the genealogy. This is how Matthew records it, Matthew 1.1. I'll just read it. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. We looked at that. Genesis 38 last week. And Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, who we'll see this morning. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, look at her, and Obed, the father of Jesse. So if you will, in Joshua chapter 2, we will pick up with the story of Rahab, the second woman in Jesus' genealogy. Joshua chapter 2, to orient you a little bit, is what I might call an unnecessary chapter in Joshua's narrative. What I mean by that is you could go from the end of chapter 1 to the beginning of chapter 3 and the story would seem seamless. It would be seamless except for a little bit at the end of Joshua 6 that might need a one-verse explanation. See, at the end of chapter 1, what's happening is God is, is proclaiming that He's giving Israel the land. He's giving these Israelites, this second generation of Israelites. Their parents had wandered in the wilderness, but these are the children that grew up. They now are going to inherit the promised land. At the end of Joshua 1, Moses has died, been buried by God himself. God buries his friend on the the top of the mountain. And uh, Joshua is now the leader. And he's leading this next generation. They're going to go into the wilderness and and, uh, go into the promised land from the wilderness and um, at the end of chapter 1, God is proclaiming, I, this is your land, I'm giving it to you. I'll, I'll be with you always, I'm not going to leave you. And so you realize, oh, this is really going to happen. And then in Joshua chapter 3, what you see is they'll break camp, they'll come to the Jordan River, they're going to go across the Jordan River, God's going to part the Jordan River for Joshua, and they will march into the promised land and begin their conquest with God ahead of them, providing for what He has promised. And so you, you could go from the end of 1 to the beginning of 3 and you wouldn't even know you missed anything in Joshua chapter 2. In fact, what we read in Joshua chapter 2 almost feels like a step backwards because it begins with the Israelites sending two spies into the land, well, the last time you remember two spies went into the land, it was in Numbers chapter 13, and, you know, there's more than two. You had all the spies go in, and they came back, and remember they, uh, they, they knew God had promised the land, they had faith, and yet they go, and they see with their own eyes that these people, well, we can never, we can never defeat these people. And their hearts sank, and their fear turned to faith, and, and thus they we were not allowed to go into the promised land because they did not believe God and they wandered for 40 years. And so you have to think it's a little bit precarious to send some spies again that didn't work out so well last time. But they are a people who were called to live by faith, not by sight. And yet, here we find in Joshua chapter 2, what appears to be a step backwards in the setting for our story of Rahab. In Joshua 2, beginning verse 1, And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho said to Rahab saying bring out the men who have come to you who entered into your house for they've come to search out all the land but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them and she said true the men came to me but I did not know where they were from and when the gate was about to be closed at dark the men went out and I do not know where the men went pursue them quickly for you you will overtake them but she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with stalks of flax, and she laid in the corner on the roof, or that she had laid in the corner on the roof. And so the men pursued them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So this, this town that they're in, this Shittim, is on the other side of the Jordan from Israel. It's on the east side of the Jordan, uh, east side of the of the Promised Land. It's um, the plain. It's in the plains of Moab. So there's the mountains, of Moab, and then you come down towards the Jordan, and you get to the base of the mountains of Moab, and you find a place called Shittim. It means um, acacia trees. It would have been a great place to camp, a, a place to to take shelter under the trees, a, a place to hide from the enemies. And and so it was there that they have camped. And Israel had been there before, actually. If you went back to Numbers chapter 22 and began reading a few chapters, you would see that that was where they were when they were coming to... Uh, they had come and they looked at the land, and yet they were there. And there was a king who was an Ammonite king, and his name was Balak. And Balak contracts a man named Balaam. Balaam was a pagan prophet. And Balak, King Balak says to Balaam, I want you to go and I want you to prophesy over these Israelites. I want you to curse them. Go and say curses over them. It will keep them from going into the land of Canaan. Well, the story goes on, you find that Balak has an encounter with God, he wakes up the next morning, he goes with the princess to Moab, God gets angry that that's what he's doing, and you find out that an angel of the Lord appears on the road there in front of him, but the only person that sees the, the angel of the Lord is a donkey, Balaam's donkey. So he stops dead in his tracks, he won't go anywhere, Balak begins to beat the donkey, and finally God opens the mouth of the donkey, and the donkey speaks to Balak, or Balaam. You know, it's, it's actually weird that the donkey speaks to Balaam. But what's even weirder than that is that Balaam talks back. They have a conversation. You can read all about it. God was saving Israel then, yet Israel we find at that very same place in Shittim. They fall into idol worship. They start sacrificing to the Moabite gods. But, but this is a different generation. It's the next generation, and it's under the next round of leadership with Joshua. And so the Jordan River is five, five miles from their camp, and you, you can go there today to, to the place they, they guess that they crossed. You can stand there and look over, and you can see Jericho in the distance, and that's where they are. And you find out in verse 1 also that when these spies go in, they go to Rahab's house. And then the text tells us really another surprising thing. Not just that they had gone back and camped at a previous place that was sketchy, but now these two spies go into Jericho. They go to a woman's house named Rahab, and you find out that Rahab's a prostitute. And as the reader, you're, you're shocked by this. You're like, oh... Here we go again. And yet, at the same time, you step back and you think, well, that maybe makes sense. It would have been a place that maybe nobody noticed because, you know, men were going in and out of there all the time. It would also have been the place you would have gotten the news. News traveled, and it traveled uh, in no faster place than maybe Rahab's house. If you wanted to know what was going on, that would be the place to go, much like if, you know, you went to the The old barber shop today. You know, you walk in, you got those old guys in there, and they got an opinion about everything. Just you don't even have to watch the news, just go sit in there for an hour. And so in verse two, you discover that the king is alerted of their visit. In verse 3, he summons Rahab because he wants to know where the men are and wants Rahab to hand them over. And then in verses four and five, you find that Rahab. She's hidden the spies, and yet she's going to go and inform the king that, oh, they were here indeed, but I didn't know who they were, and I, I don't know where they went. They snuck out of the gate before dark, and, but if you hurry, you can catch them. See, in other words, Rahab lies. She tells a big lie, as a matter of fact. In fact, what she does, she tells a lie that not only protects these two men, these, these two spies, she tells a lie that puts herself in in grave danger not just danger for herself but we find out she has her father's house which means her father and her mother and her brothers and her sisters and all of their kids she puts all of her people in great danger if she's caught in this lie surely she'll be executed and and likely her whole family with her she takes a huge risk but why See, she doesn't even know them. She's a pagan woman. She's a prostitute woman. She lives in a godless place called Jericho. It was their land that these spies had come to spy out. I mean, she's on the losing end of this deal. Why would she protect them? And that's exactly what the, uh, the, the point that's exactly where the writer, the narrator, um, under God's inspiration, is bringing us to ask us the question: why would she protect them? Why would she risk everything for the sake of these two men? You know, it's, it's important to know this. I'll, I'll read a quote from one commentator. What the writer's not concerned about that sometimes we can be concerned about. You know, you can hear sermons about this, and you can hear guys, or you can read commentaries, and people will go through all of these gymnastics um, to say things like, well, she lied, but here's the deal. And, there, and there's absolute truth. Uh, in truth, not relative, but at some times there's absolute relative truth. And then they begin to talk themselves into cul de sacs, and you spend all these gymnastics trying to, um, uh, you know, account for and justify what it is that Rahab has done. I think we could take a note from Dale Ralph Davis. He says, This incidentally tells us exactly what the writer's not concerned about. He's not very interested in the picky ethical questions of verses four through six. Endless wranglings and discussions about whether it's right for Rahab to lie to the Jericho police and so on. It's tragic when people snag their britches on the nail of Rahab's lie, quibble endlessly about the matter, and never get around to hearing Rahab's truth. You see, we are meant to come away with this, not in judgment on Rahab, but with great curiosity. Why in the world, would this woman do this? So she hides him on the roof under some stalks of flax, which, if you didn't know, it's not a very good hiding place. In some ways, it's like, hey, we got out of this by the skin of our teeth. You know, when the police don't come and search the house and what's all going on. And I think behind all of this, you see the guiding hand, the protecting hand, the saving hand, the redeeming hand of God. You see, God had been preparing Rahab. I mean, He wasn't just working with the Israelites over the last 40 years to, to bring them, to prepare them to a place to trust Him as their God, to prepare them for what He would promised, to prepare them for the faith, to believe that He really is God and He's really going to do what He says He's going to do. It took 40 years to prepare the people. We find He's also preparing Rahab. Look at what the next verses say, beginning in verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you this land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And What you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you'll save alive my father and mother, and my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even in death. If you do not tell the business of ours, when the Lord gives us this land, we will deal kindly. And fairly with you. You know, you have to think, you want to pause here for a second. This is what this chapter is all about. It's Rahab's confession. It is what Rahab believes about God, which is the reason the author included this, this unnecessary chapter. See, the confession's remarkable because before we pass over it too quickly, because I mean, the words are familiar. I mean, we, see, we sing things in our, in our choruses, in our hymns. God's the God of the heavens and the, and the God of the earth. But sometimes we can be guilty. We sing those on Sunday morning without much thought. They're familiar to us. But listen, Rahab, she didn't grow up in church. She grew up in the middle of a godless nation. I mean, her parents didn't take her to Sunday school and She never went to camp. She didn't have a Bible or a quiet time journal. I mean, none of her Facebook friends were Christians. I mean, she didn't have anything. Her knowledge of God came from pagan news. Not a preacher, not an evangelist, not a prophet. From the newspaper, from the evening news. She'd heard about these Jewish people who were wandering in the wilderness who had come out of slavery, out of Egypt and that their God had parted the sea and that's what they'd been told and and, 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 and then they went up against the the kings of the Amorites, I mean those kings and they defeated them the people of Jericho were afraid of the Israelites we find out I mean Jericho had fortified had a fortified city, they had not just one wall, they had two walls I mean, Jericho was the place you wanted to be if there was going to be a war because no one had defeated Jericho. They, they, They typically weren't afraid of people. But this was different. This time, they would be attacked from the east, from the direction of the Jordan River, which they'd never been concerned with before because the time that kings go to war, coincidentally aligned with the same time that the Jordan River was as full as it was ever going to be. And no, no military people, no groups of people could cross the Jordan when it was at its fullest. Except these people had a God who parted waters. And so that changed the game. You also can't help but notice the contrast. I mean, 40 years ago, the people of Israel were terrified. They were Afraid of the people of the land of Canaan. Their fear kept them from the land. It paralyzed their faith. It kept them from following God into the blessing that He'd promised and that He had for them. But now, 40 years later, it's the Canaanites who are afraid. The text says their hearts were melting. Except for one. Rahab her response was not that she was afraid. In fact, what we find is that she has a response of faith. She believed. She, she wasn't terrified. I mean, she feared God, but she wasn't afraid. She has faith, so much faith, that she is going to risk everything. And So now you have Rahab's confession, her confession about God. It's the confession Israel should have had 40 years earlier. This pagan, idolatrous prostitute that lived in the most godless place on earth, she believed. She heard and she believed. Well, so what did she believe? Well, if you walk through the confession with me, beginning in verse 9, she believed in God's sovereignty. Your Lord, the Lord, she knew God's name, incidentally, she called him what God had told his people to call him, I Am. The, the, I, I Am. He has given you the land. It, what she's saying is, look, it's God's land. I, I'm recognizing that. It's God's land. It must be his. It's not ours. It belongs to him, and he's given it to his, his people. He is sovereign over all these things. She also is proclaiming God's power. Notice she, she recounts, we've heard he's parted the sea and you defeated the kings. And so, I mean, God has power over nature and over politics and over armies and over history. And I mean, nothing in her life compared to that. I mean, sure, she, she knew the gods of Canaan, no doubt. And she probably worshiped them. She may have even been a, a prostitute at the temple that facilitated the worship of the gods of Canaan maybe she had an idol or a trinket in her home and maybe she'd even received some kind of comfort at some point in her worship of those gods but nothing that she had ever known in her life ever compared with the power of Israel's god she would risk leaving everything behind to worship god i think we find here this she has a hope she has a hope of her salvation a hope for her life that that wasn't in the gods that she had known and it wasn't in the armies of jericho or the history of jericho or the land of canaan it wasn't in any nationalism or or pride, or, or politics, or, or herself, it, she, she had no hope in anything else. Her hope for salvation, her hope to be delivered was in the God of Israel. Which brings me to the third thing. There's God's sovereignty, there's God's power, there's also God's supremacy. She says in verse 12, for the Lord your God. He, he's God in the heavens above and the earth below. I mean, he, he's the Lord of everything. He, his supremacy knows no bounds. It extends everywhere. There's no one beside Him. He has no equal. He is he's supreme. I think she's also expressing a confidence in God's Word. She says to them, Give me your Word, the Word you'll swear by the Lord. She She knew God's wrath was coming to Jericho. She knew her only hope of salvation was God, that He would save her by His hand through His people. Listen, Rahab's confession is is desperate. It's full of dependence. It's a hope against hope that God would be gracious to save her, despite who she is. A Canaanite, a a woman, a a prostitute, she's part of a godless People who were destined for the destruction of God's wrath. She believed, she hoped, that not that God would overlook who she was. She wasn't even looking at herself. She believed, she she hoped, that God would save her because of who He was. Her faith in God leads her to risk everything. And I think it's also a confession of God's grace and mercy. She she feared God, but she wasn't afraid. She trusted Him. She, She believed His grace and His mercy could extend even to her, not because of who she is, but despite who she is. She believed God saw her not only as she was, but what she could be in Him. The pagan prostitute believed she could worship the one true God. She could be accepted to worship the one true God that she could become His, that He would accept her. I mean, her entire life was transactional. I mean, love was a transaction. Acceptance was a transaction. Security was a transaction. That's all she'd ever known. That's all. This way her gods worked. She had nothing to give. She couldn't buy her deliverance. She can't buy her salvation. She's going to trust God for it. See, I think it may be that the Israelites sent the spies into Jericho because they were still a little bit afraid. I mean, they were still unsure. Yes, we believe God, but I mean, we want to be sure. I mean, it would make us feel a little better if we could go scout out the place and, you know, just... See that they, they do have some weaknesses that we could lay our eyes on on what would give us a little bit of hope. I mean we would feel better about that. I believe the Israelites had faith in God i mean that 's why they were there but but they didn 't feel it they, they wanted to see it. so these two spies in their quest to find some hope in their own strengths, some hope that they could actually pull this thing off, that, the, that conquering the land that God had given them was really a possibility. So they wanted to walk by sight. They, they wanted to see for themselves that they had a chance. They, but you know what they find? They find a woman of faith. A, a desperate woman who walked by faith in their God. Not by sight. A woman, a prostitute, someone unclean, unworthy, a, w- a woman they would have shunned, but they find in her a faith willing to risk everything on the hope that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. I, I think they're inspired. I mean, they pledge their lives to her. I- Our life, even for yours, in death. They they mark her home, we'll find out, as a safe place, what it had been to them. A a safe place, a safe space. Destruction will come, but this space is going to be safe. In 1996, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch reported on a story, and the title of the story was this, Mother Perishes While Saving Infant, She Shields Baby in Tub." in East St. Louis house fire. So the woman's name was Carla Jacobs, and she wakes up and realizes that her house is on fire, but it's too late, and the flames are all all around. She cannot get out, and she knows that she's trapped, and so as she's surrounded by the flames, she grabs her two-month-old baby, runs into the bathroom, draws a couple of inches of water in the bathtub, and then she lays the baby face up in the in this water in the bathtub and then what she does is is with her body gets over the baby and shields her son from the fire the the way that the newspaper reports it trapped by flames and smoke carla jacobs ran into the bathroom with her 7 week old son she placed him in a bathtub ran some water and then used her body to shield the baby this is what Jerry Humphrey, the fire chief, said. She's dead because she wanted to save the child. It's tragic. I'd also add, it's, it's heroic. It's, it's beautiful. She, she made a safe space for her child. She saved him. Rahab's space is going to be made safe. And the guarantee is, they say, our life for yours even to death. You know, so it's a statement. I mean, it's a powerful statement. And it causes us to pause for just a moment because it's what Jesus says to you. My, my life for yours in death my death for you. The cross is this safe place. This safe space. This place of salvation. Jesus makes the space for you to be saved. Just like Rahab's house. Well, we looked at. There's this mystery of grace that they're at the beginning. There's the confession of grace that Rahab makes. I want you to see the chapter ends with a, what I would call the security of grace. What she's going to do, the text will tell us, she lets them out the window. They hide for three days. Um, then they, they, before they leave, they go over the terms of what's going to happen in the invasion. So, you know, stay in your room, get your family here, don't, you know, don't Don't rat us out and all of that. And so they agree. They make their promises. And so now Rahab is left to wait. And she's going to wait several chapters. It won't be till the end of chapter 6 that she appears again. She's going to watch the Israelites come into the area. She's going to observe them making camp. And then she's going to observe them marching around Jericho. She'll hear the horns blowing and she will wait But her rescue is sure. There is a security in the grace that she's believed. Well, two final thoughts and we'll close with this. But there is this. In verse 21, you read this. And she said, according to your words, so be it, verse 21. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the red scarlet cord in the window. They had agreed that that would be the sign. She was going to hang it out her window, a sign of, I think it were to read it as a sign of her faith, the security of her salvation when the time comes. And So, in some ways, I, I think it's a, it's a picture for us. I mean, it's meant to be a signpost, a, a, a forward-pointing sign of the security of grace when it comes to God's salvation. So there's nothing magical about a red scarlet cord. It, But it is there in the text for us to see. In 95 AD, there was a a bishop of the church in Rome. His name was Clement. Clement of Rome. And Clement was a believer. In fact, he's he's a bishop of the church. He represents the second generation of leadership in the church after... Uh, you know, Peter and and Paul and uh, uh, almost said Mary, but um, so Peter and Paul and, and John and and James, and, and so it's the second generation of leadership. John in ninety five A.D. John has just died, and so this is early. This is very early, and the earliest commentary, the earliest sermon we have on this passage is preached by Clement in 95 A.D. from Rome. Here's what he says. He writes this, and they proceeded. These are words from um, 1 Clement 12, 7. We, it's not in our Bible, but I mean, we have it. Well, Bethel doesn't have it, but you can Google it, all right? The Google has it. Anyways, and they proceeded to give her a sign, this is what he's writing, and that she should hang out a scarlet thread from her house, foreshowing or foreshadowing or pointing to, the the word is is typology, foreshowing that all who believe and hope on God shall have redemption through the blood of the Lord. Clement saw it as a signpost pointing forward to the death of Jesus. But that's what her faith by God's grace through faith that's how she's saved and that faith ultimately will result in being in the shed blood of Jesus. She didn't know it yet but she believed God. The second final thought comes in verse 24. Look, Look at what it says in verse 24. So the Spies come back, they tell Joshua all that they'd seen, and then they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. The, the, the land melted because of us. The, the explicit reference is to the fear of the, of the people. They, they were afraid because they were the people of God, and, but... I think there's an implied meaning as well. I think there's a double meaning. There's the fear of the people because of God and his people. But there's also the faith of Rahab. Her heart melts. Psalm 75 5 or 97 5 says this the, the mountains melt like wax before the Lord. That's the powerful effect he has when he comes into your life. Amos, the prophet, will write in Amos 9.5, The Lord God of hosts, he touches the earth and it melts. It's ominous sounding. And yet then he will say, eight verses later, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall melt with it. It'll look like the the mountains are, are melting wine. I will restore the fortunes of my people of Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make their gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I've given them says the Lord your God. God melts her heart with grace, redeeming, mysterious, assuring, surprising grace. That's why we've called the series, this Advent season, Surprising Grace. I'll conclude this way. God not only saves Rahab, and then uses Rahab to save Israel. God uses Rahab to make it possible to save you and to save me. What happens, we find out, is that after Jericho falls, Rahab is brought into God's people. She becomes part of Israel. She lives with Israel. And then she'll soon meet a man named Salmon, and she'll marry him, and they'll have a son named Boaz. And Boaz is going to have a son named Obed, and Obed is going to have a son named Jesse, and Jesse is going to have a son named David. And then 24 generations later, Jesus is going to be born from the line of David that flows directly back to Rahab. Here's what's so amazing. Her her declaration of faith is actually an act of God's surprising grace we're not much different from her. I mean, just like Rahab, we're not originally part of God's family, but we're, we're part of a corrupt, sinful world. Like Rahab, we've heard of God's mighty deeds. Rahab is going to experience God's surprising grace and, and, and seek refuge in Him. And, and the truth is we can experience the same surprising grace even today. See, when you read Rahab's story, you you can't help but see the truth that God sees not just who we are, but who He's making us to be. Who we are in Him. One more surprising thing about Rahab is that there are all these labels in the Bible. You can go back through the history of the Great heroes in the Bible, and you find that you know Abraham. He was a selfish liar. We talked about that last. Year. Jacob, his name's Deceiver. Gideon. You know, he ends his life as a coward. David, he's an adulterer. He's a he's a murderer. But you, what you find is those labels are never used about any of those men in the New Testament. She's referred to as Abraham. And Jacob, and it, but Rahab's different. You see her mentioned twice in the New Testament. in James 2:25, when as James, James is talking about faith and faith that, that demonstrates itself, he, he says, and in the same way, was not also Rahab the what does it say? prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. In Hebrews eleven thirty-one, the hall of fame of faith, Rahab's the last one mentioned with any detail, and then the writers said, well, there's all these other people I could tell you about. But in verse 31, by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she'd given a friendly welcome to the spies. She's always referred to as Rahab the harlot, Rahab the prostitute. But because of her faith, it's no longer a label of shame. As Mark Kirkendall puts it, it's a billboard of surprising grace. You know, all of us this morning, we have those labels of shame. Stuff people know about, you know, with, oh gosh, you know, it's why you don't go to, you know, high school reunion or whatever. And then there's things people don't know about. Just the thought of it, you know, makes your eyes wince. I mean, just the, the shame. But what we find about Rahab is that her label, who she is, it's, it's not shame anymore, it's a billboard of surprising grace. One writer says, he wrote a book. The holy longing to be connected with the church is to be associated with scoundrels and warmongers and and fakes and abusers and murderers and adulterers and hypocrites of every description. It also at the same time identifies you with saints of of the finest persons of heroic soul within every time and country and race and gender. To be a member of the church is to carry the mantle of both the worst sinner and the finest heroism of the soul because the church always looks exactly as it looked at the original crucifixion. God hung among thieves. Her public declaration, Joshua 2.11, As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, is the God of heavens and the God of earth, or the God of heavens above and the earth beneath. It's her declaration of faith. Let me ask you this more. What do you believe about God? What do you declare about God? What's your statement of faith? Well, we had these. we were sitting by the bulletins when you walked in, and if you didn't get one, I encourage you to pick one up. There are three declarations of faith that Eric and Mark and I did this week. And we left a space down at the bottom for you to write yours. What do you believe about God? What are you proclaiming about God? What are you declaring about the God you have faith in? Eric's and Mark's, incidentally, are really good. So, uh, mine's too long. But that's a surprise, isn't it? What we get to do now is we get to declare our faith in really the most beautiful of ways by communion. If the men who are going to help us with communion would go ahead and come forward, I'll tell you what we're declaring about it in the juice and the bread, these symbols. The, the bread is the symbol of, of Jesus' body, His humanity. He's fully God and fully man. The, blo- the, the juice represents the blood of Jesus that was spilt, His death, His sacrifice for our sin. So we take this this morning. It's a declaration of faith in who Jesus is and what He's done to save us. Why He came. Why He appeared. It also is a a way that we are proclaiming His death until He returns. Until the next appearing. In fact, communion is is the perfect declaration in the midst of an Advent season. So we will Share this meal together at the Lord's table. It's our custom here at Bethel that we will um, wait until the elements have been passed out to everyone and then we'll partake of those things together. If you're a believer in Jesus for your salvation, you're welcome at this table. There will be at the back some gluten-free, wheat-free, all the bad stuff-free bread so if you if you want that you can go and take that if you would bow with me as we pray father we do thank you for this time to celebrate at your